All right, why don't we begin with prayer this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us together once again as your church, your body, the body of Christ, which you have purchased with your own blood. And we thank you for the preciousness of this fellowship that we have. Thank you that we can come together and encourage one another. And thank you for the way that you have uh, gifted us in unique ways within the body of Christ by virtue of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us so that we might be able to serve one another and build up the body of Christ to exactly what you would have it to be, to be in the image of Christ and conform to him. And as we're here this morning, may we not take it for granted, the benefits that the church brings to us individually, but even more than that, may we not uh, forget the purpose and the mission that you have for us while we're here to encourage and to edify and to build up one another as we worship you and as we are conformed to you and as we come to your word and as we seek to submit to everything that you've said. We pray that you would help our hearts not only to be challenged this morning, but also to be responsive, that we would be convicted where we need to be, uh, but also repentant where we need to be. Pray that you would give us insight and wisdom and practical godliness for living, and we pray that you would help us uh, to be encouraged where we are doing the things that are in line with what your word has said, to continue in doing those things and to excel still more. Father, we pray that you would use this time to bring glory to your name, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, welcome everyone. We are going to continue in our study of 2 Timothy this morning, and uh, we've made our way halfway through the book. So uh, thank you, Ryan, for uh, taking us most of the way there. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning, so if you'd like to turn there, we will go ahead and read from 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, just about the first half, actually a little more than half of the chapter, starting in verse 1, and we will cover through verse 9 this morning. And uh, it talks about difficulty, difficulty in the church, difficulty in ministry, difficulty in doing the kinds of things that Paul is exhorting Timothy to do as he leaves this final charge with him as his death is quickly approaching. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, I'll read the whole passage first and then we will walk through it. It says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres's folly was also. Difficult times in the church. Difficult times are going to come, and this passage is a warning to Timothy. It's not meant to be a warning that is uh, just a discouragement to him, although when we read this, it could be discouraging if we're not careful to understand it in its context and in light of the commands that were given. Uh, but it is filled with the kinds of things that describe utter ungodliness. The list here is one of several lists in the New Testament of the kinds of sins that characterize wicked and unbelieving people. And here it is focusing on a certain characteristic or set of characteristics that describe people in the last days, in the times that, in fact, we now find ourselves in. Uh, so we're going to walk through this list and we're going to break down this passage into a couple of different uh, sections just to help us to navigate it. The first thing that we want to learn from this passage and that Timothy was supposed to learn and that anyone that wants to minister the gospel and to minister in the church should understand is to expect difficult times. To expect difficult times. Uh, he says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
Now, of course, this is probably not surprising to anyone at this point in the book, is it? If you've been here, we know that there are going to be things that are going to be challenging, and there's going to be things that come with the ministry of the gospel and of the word of God that are not pleasant. Um, Paul has already said, just even in, uh, even in recent verses, back at the beginning, or rather the end of chapter 2, in verse 25, he says, with gentleness correcting those who are in what? Opposition. Opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. He says in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Well, why would he have to even not be quarrelsome? Because there are going to be people who would quarrel with him and with whom he would be tempted to argue in the wrong kinds of ways. And then he even says that he needs to be patient when wronged. There are those in verse 19 who are wicked and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from such wickedness. But of course, this, uh, this whole idea of having a hard time in doing ministry goes really all the way back to the beginning of the book and especially in verse 8 of chapter 1 where he says, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He says in verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. He gives an example of Onesiphorus who suffered for the sake of Paul who was not ashamed of his chains. So this is just something that has gone on and there's more about this early in chapter 2 as well. Uh, so it's not as if this idea of difficulty is new, but he brings a, a special focus to the kind of people who are going to be opposed to him in ministry. And it might not even be those who are openly opposed to him and who are explicitly saying, Paul, we are your enemies. Instead, it's going to be people who are characterized by things that undermine the gospel and undermine gospel ministry while at the same time making a claim of being Christian and making a claim of doing biblical gospel ministry. That's why at the heart of this passage is where it says in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. All of the things that are described in verses 2 through 4 describe people who say that they hold to the Christian religion. How about that? Can you imagine people doing these kinds of things and saying, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm a Christian teacher? Well, you probably don't even have to imagine, do you? You probably know people like this and you probably have been around people like this. You might even have them in your lives right now. This passage tells us how to think about such people and what to do. And uh, the first few verses of this passage give us one basic instruction. Expect difficult times. Expect difficult times. Do what I've told you to do, Timothy, but understand it is going to be difficult. Um, he says here that there will be difficult times, meaning difficult uh, eras or seasons. It's not so much times on the clock, is it? It's times. It is the general uh, time periods. And he's not so much saying, well, there's going to be a difficult time that lasts three months and then one that, you know, then it's easy for three months and then it's hard for six months. Although there may be certain seasons that are harder or easier for someone like Timothy in ministry. But the point is more that they will just generally be present. This kind of time is going to be present. So who needs to be looking out for this? Well, Timothy does, first of all. But who else needs to be looking out for this? Is this just for him? Or is it for other people? What do you think? What would your answer be to that question? Did this challenge and this warning pass away with Timothy? Or is this for someone else as well? And how do we know? Yes, Heather. That's right, yeah. So the time period tells us when this is going to come, and it is the last days, as you say. That's good. So the last days didn't stop when Timothy passed off the scene. The last days began really when Jesus came upon the earth and uh, when he died and was resurrected and the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to indwell all believers. Uh, this this sort of put a new redemptive period into play. So Peter could say in Acts chapter 2 that there was the promise that in the last days God would pour out his spirit on all men. 
So this kind of language refers to, more broadly speaking, the the era of once Jesus comes into the world and kicks off the whole sequence of events that had been promised long ago in the Old Testament. And it continues to this day. So the timing of difficult times is what he describes here. The timing of difficult times. Uh, And it is in the last days. James 5.3 says that it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, After God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. So here is the time that these difficult times will take place in. It is in the last days. It was going on when Timothy was around, and it continues to this very day that we are in. And it will continue, this idea of these hardships, these difficult times, until Christ returns and does something about it. What then is the nature of these difficult times? The timing is in the last days, back then and all the way to now, the nature of difficult times is just simply that they will be what? In one word, difficult. They will be difficult. Uh, The idea of this word has to do with something that is hard to bear or even violent. It's used to describe the demon-possessed men that meet Jesus in Matthew 8, 28. It says that they were, quote, so extremely violent, using the same word, that no one could pass by that way. Uh, there, There is a kind of hardship and a kind of tenseness and intensity that goes with this idea of difficult. So it's not just challenging, but there is something to this that is like, it's got energy. It's got bad energy. And here, this is what Timothy is going to find himself in. It could be easy for us. Uh, in light of, I don't know, maybe the past few decades in America, to think that Christianity and Christian ministry should just be kind of easy. Like the default of our culture, um, at least there are, there are things where, you know, more or less it is somewhat respectable to be a Christian and where you're not really going to be persecuted very hard for that. Now, I think the last few years probably you've started to feel some things. You've started to feel some things where this is not necessarily the same as it was then. And uh, I think that we maybe have gotten a little bit spoiled with this. And this kind of warning right here is like, oh no, it's panic time. But really what Paul is saying here is just this is going to be characteristic. You should always recognize that you are in a battle. And that when you have the absence of hostility, or at least open hostility, then it should be surprising to you that if it, and in fact, it may even be a good indication that you're not necessarily recognizing the difficulties that are there. And in fact, some of this here, when he talks about the things that are going on, are the kinds of things where godliness can seem like everything is fine, or where Christianity can seem like everything is fine, but in reality, it's actually being undercut in ways that are somewhat deceptive. So why is it going to be difficult then? He explains. The reason for difficult times is not the increasing speed of life. It is not foreign invasion. It is not even government persecution. It is not sickness or illness. It is not the difficulty of translating things into new languages, although those things all are difficult. The reason that ministry and responding to people who are hostile toward the gospel, the reason those things are difficult is because of what certain men will be. Difficult times will come for men will be. All of these things here. This is why this is challenging because you will have people who act in a certain way while claiming to be something that they are not. So it's difficult because of their evil character. Their evil character. And it says men will be these things. They don't just do certain actions, but this is who they are. This is a character problem. This is a problem from the heart. And the reason that these things turn out to be problems of activity is because they're problems of who they are and what they want. Um, Let's go through this list and just consider these things. Lovers of self. Lovers of self. Uh, What strikes you about that statement? Men will be lovers of self. Let's talk about the idea of Lovers of self for a moment. Okay. 
Okay, so yeah, you, instead of dying to yourself, you are loving that which has, has been uh, put aside. You have died, Scripture says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Yeah, Di- yes, Jessica. Yeah, yeah, that is the language of our culture, is it not? That, that we should love ourselves. That, has been, that, is, that is what is promoted more openly than ever. Uh, it's, it's almost hard to believe sometimes. It's like, you, you're not just saying this as a caricature, are you? Like, you're actually saying that you need to indulge in self-care, you need to indulge in self-love, that you need to practice self-love, self-affirmation. It's gone way beyond what was going on when I was growing up, which is you need to have a healthy, uh, healthy, uh, a healthy self-esteem, which of course even that uh, goes beyond what the Bible describes for the way that we ought to think about ourselves. It's the wrong direction for the way that we ought to think about ourselves, and it falls under this umbrella of lovers of self. It's just not as blatant because it's a it's a word that was uh, at least uh, for many of us the only time where we ever used the word esteem, and it was in that very technical sense of self-esteem. So it can be very easy to kind of slip that under the radar and not just look at the actual definition of the word and say, well, self-esteem actually means that you think very highly of yourself. We just kind of thought, well, you need to not be uh, dumping on yourself all the time and not attacking yourself all the time. And you need to think, you know, you need to kind of boost yourself up and get going and not be discouraged. Uh, But that, of course, has now given way to a a lot more full-blown, explicit, and open statements that you need to look out for yourself. Men are indeed lovers of self, and people in our culture are lovers of self, and they justify it, and they say that this is what needs to take place. And they do so by various ways. Um, What are some of the rationalizations people give for saying that you should love yourself and focus on loving yourself? What have you heard? What have you perhaps done in your own heart? What are the things that you hear that make people say or that people say to justify self-love? Yeah, Heather. Yeah, yeah, you can't love others if you don't first love yourself. Yeah, you have to know how to love yourself. And if you don't know how, then you don't know how to love other people. Yeah, it's like you have to practice on yourself. Yeah, what else do you hear? Yeah, think about if you if you go, you know, you go into the doctor and you're like, hey, I'm I'm not very healthy, and he says, all right, well, you can do this regimen that's very unpleasant, or you can go to a pizza buffet every night. Which one do you want to do to try to attack this? Like, well, let me go to eat pizza, right? That's that's fun. Um, so if you go into someone who's trying to encourage you to, uh, yeah, how to address your problems, you can say, well, actually, you're dealing with this because you're really concerned about what people think about you to a crippling degree, and you're actually very self-indulgent, and you don't want to do what God says. Um, but the cure for this is just you don't love yourself enough. So you're given these two paths of self-denial versus self-love to cure your external problems that you actually see or your feelings that you have. Which path are you going to take? Of course you're going to be the one that says, oh, you know what the answer is? I just haven't loved myself enough. And if I love myself enough, then, then things will get better. So, yeah, that's a great example. That's exactly, that's exactly what people are falling for. Yeah. Did you have something here? Yeah, you can't leave that to other people. They'll mess it up. They're not going to love you the way you want. Yeah, but you can love yourself perfectly. So, of course that. And, again, maybe you wouldn't necessarily say that openly, although some people would. But it's, yeah, you've got to look out for number one. You have to make sure your needs are taken care of. You have to make sure that your needs are met. Um, A lot of times there's a sort of sleight of hand that takes place in this. Uh, even with the language of what we sometimes call uh, self-care, that, that idea is very popular now, self-care. And what self-care sometimes can mean when people are using it, I suppose, in the less, uh, the less um, loaded sense, would be you take a shower and you have some time where you get to yourself and actually can think apart from uh, 
you know, maybe 20 other people who's injecting their thoughts into your brain. Um, maybe you are exercising or you're taking care of your, your physical body in certain ways. People sometimes use it to refer to spiritual disciplines and so on. Uh, but I would probably encourage you to watch out carefully if you're using that term to describe those things and maybe look for something else, some other term or some other group of terms because very easily under the language of self-care or under the concept of self-care, it can then slip into self-love, self-prioritization. And you can justify just about anything that is prioritizing yourself under the guise of, well, I'm just caring for myself so that I can care for other people. You know, I'm that guy on the airplane when the cabin loses pressure and I've got to put my mask on first so that I can then be conscious to put my kid's mask on next. And if I don't take care of myself in these ways, then I'm not going to be able to serve other people. As if we have to have everything perfectly aligned in our lives to be able to sacrifice for the sake of other people. Of course, Jesus showed us that this is not the case. He was able to serve and to go to the cross and to do things for other people despite the fact that there were often times when he was hungry. There were times when he was uh, without a home. And he was still able to give himself for the sake of other people. And we would consider those things, food and shelter, to be right at the very core of caring for ourselves in those basic ways. And yet he often served other people when he didn't have them at all. So even those things we don't have to have before we can serve other people. It's fine to try to keep yourself in certain, uh, you know, certain good order. That's, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. And in many cases, it's something that people don't give enough attention to in some ways because they're not being faithful stewards of what they have. But... It can very easily become an excuse to focus on self at the expense of other people. And then it goes to this category of being a lover of self. Of course, people will rationalize this biblically and have done so for decades now by saying that Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So how can we love our neighbor if we're not actually loving ourselves? And they take that as if there's some type of implicit command to love yourself built into that statement. The reality is that Jesus, and of course citing the Old Testament in making that command, assumes that we already love ourselves. He assumes that we already take care of ourselves in the ways that we're supposed to. To love your neighbor as you love yourself means not that you would try to love yourself more. It means rather that you would recognize that you already do things that are in your own interest and that you need to put your neighbor up on that same level. In fact, Paul even takes it a step further in Philippians 2 and says that we are supposed to not merely look out for our own interests but for the interests of others. And he says Christ is the example who made other people more important than himself. So we don't just love our neighbor as ourselves. In many ways, we are called to love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. Here, though, lovers of self is what these guys will be. They will be uh, several other things. Let's look through the list. Lovers of money. Lovers of money. There's a reason why an elder or overseer must be free from this type of money love. 1 Timothy 3, 3 puts it as a requirement. Both of these, of course, are misplaced love as well as the last in the list of verse 4, lovers of uh, pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boastful, of course, being arrogant telling other people about the great things that you have done. You look for opportunities to tell people what you're good at. You talk about how you're better than other people. You look for ways to get your pride out. You're in a conversation and somebody mentions something that you've done or that you're good at or that's you know, sort of even tangential to that. And you say, ah, this is an opportunity to let other people know what I've done. Or you post something online and you say, I am, quote, so humbled to receive this honor. I'm not sure how that works still. I haven't figured out that language. If anyone understands how that works, please let me know because I, I haven't grasped it yet. But it, we look for ways to tell other people how great we are. And we do so because, he says, boastful and arrogant, thinking that you're better than other people. Not just saying it, but believing it. That's what these men thinks. Uh, these men think, rather. They are the same thing, by the way, um, at the heart of them. You could include the word pride in this list, which the world loves to have in many different ways. But anytime this goes against other people by exalting yourself over them, anytime this goes against God by exalting yourself above his commandments, this is arrogance. These men will be revilers. They will speak poorly of other people. We are warned against doing this in Titus 3 too. We're not to malign unbelievers or really anyone else. 
that we're not to speak evil of them. Uh, there's slander that goes on here, blasphemy that goes on toward other people, harsh speech. Of course, again, all of these come from a position of pride and arrogance where you think you're better than other people. And then he gives a sort of rapid-fire list um, for most of the rest of this section. And if I could, well, just through verse 3 from this point, and, and if I could kind of carry the sense to our translation, um, it, it's hard to do, but it would be something like this, um, unobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unreconcilable, and then malicious gossips, uncontrolled, untamed, unloving the good. I know that's a little clunky, but the idea there is what they're not. That's kind of the language that's behind these. They're not this. They're not this. They're not this. They're not this. Uh, They're anti all of the things that they should be. These men are disobedient to parents. This is maybe the representative sin of our culture. Uh, I know that this is not uh, maybe the most commonly thought of one. but This is also listed in Romans chapter 1, disobedient to parents. Uh, How are parent-child relationships portrayed in our media, in our entertainment, and in our culture. How do people think about these things? Yeah. Yeah. No, they don't know anything. They're just out of touch. They, they turn out of touch when you're about like 12, maybe? Is that when they get out of touch? Yeah. Then they get back in touch when you're about 28 or something, whenever you start to need, you know, like, what am I doing here? But yeah, parents are out of touch. They don't know what's going on. Yeah, what else? How are parents portrayed? Yeah, Matt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The child is the boss. And you know what? Functionally, in many, many cases, they are the boss. The child does what they want. The child goes where they want to go. They manipulate their way into doing this. The parents have been taught to think that it's wrong for them to exercise authority over them, to practice discipline on them in any way. They have been told that this will harm their self-esteem, believe it or not. And this, they will just give them whatever they want. They're afraid to do it. It takes effort. It takes work. And you get what people know as a child-centered household. And if I would encourage you while we're here that if you are allowing or fostering any type of disobedience to you as a parent, then you need to put a stop to that. And you need to take drastic measures, not ungodly measures, but drastic measures to make sure that your children are obedient to you because... As Colossians 3 tells us, this is pleasing to the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Why? This is pleasing to the Lord. And it is displeasing when a child is disobedient to parents. uh, We're so much in where this is in the water that we swim in in our culture that it it, it just doesn't show up how rebellious kids are today. And I know I sound like a whippersnapper, but how rebellious they are relative to the way that this would always have been understood in all but certain modern cultures. And if you just could see them all, this would stick out like a sore thumb. Um, Disobedience to parents, this willingness to reject what a parent instructs you to do when you are under their authority. Uh, Michael, did I see, are you still? Okay. Yeah, and it, it does. It just it is it is our responsibility as parents to make sure that that uh, children who like us when we were younger did not understand the way certain things work and did not have the kind of wisdom that we needed. Not that we do now, but hopefully there is more by virtue of of growing in that over time. 
but it's to let them to see, uh, it's to be able to make them make certain decisions when we need to make them for them, and it is to guide them in other ways, and certainly it is to make sure that where authority is in place, it is to be followed. Um, but yeah, this is, the, this is the way that these things are presented, and uh, this kind of thinking of disobedience to parents being not just accepted sometimes, but really just basically what you're supposed to do when you become a teen. Like, that's kind of the way that it works in the world. You're just supposed to have some sort of like, well, now I don't listen to my parents anymore. What do they know? They're not, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, ungrateful. Rather than this, we need to cultivate a habit of thanking God all the time. Uh, unholy refers to being defiled. Unloving, again, refers to not loving other people. Uh, irreconcilable, people holding grudges today, not forgiving People can talk about grace and second chances and everybody deserves a second chance all the time until it's something that they don't like or it's someone that really has offended them or someone that's hurt them personally and then they hold on to these grudges. Treacherous, this is the idea of being a traitor, backstabbing, turning on people, not being loyal, reckless, doing things without thinking them through, conceited, literally it's the idea of being clouded in smoke, uh, where you just have this view of yourself and you don't see things clearly. And then he says, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What a contrast. What a contrast. What is the thing that you love the most? Well, these men love pleasure rather than loving God. Which, of course, loving God is the entirety of the first great commandment. Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Instead of loving God, what do these men love? They love self, they love money, and they love pleasure. 2023 in a nutshell, but this is not unique to 2023, and it's specifically focusing on a certain group of people. And this is what we want to look at, because it's not just that this is characteristic of the culture, although certainly we find this in many ways, in many places in our culture. But what we have here that's striking and that makes this so difficult is not the ungodly character or the evil character of the people. The reason for difficult times is not just their evil character, but it is their false claim to godliness. Do you notice this here? Verse 5, their false claim to godliness, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. The word godliness especially in the pastoral epistles, uh, refers often, and kind of generally speaking, not just to godly practice, um, but really to the entirety of the Christian religion. It's almost a, a technical term, like when uh, in 1 Timothy 3, when Paul says in verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh, there is a kind of uh, technical terminology of the Christian religion, and that's really what's in view here. They hold to a form of not just general godliness, but they're saying they practice and they teach your religion, the Christian faith. Timothy, they say they're doing what you're doing. They say they believe the same gospel, that they believe the same scriptures, that they believe the same practice, but they, they don't. And they verbally assent to it, but in their action, they deny something fundamental about it, which is, their, which is its power. Now we know that the gospel has power. We saw it in verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Verse 8, he says, Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for what? Salvation. For salvation. The gospel provides power. And it provides power for godliness. For living. For doing what God says. When God saves a person, when a person believes the gospel, that's not just a change of allegiance. That brings about a change of heart. It brings about a change in who they are. The Holy Spirit dwells in them and they can do things that they couldn't do formerly with regard to sin and godliness. It does have an effect. But these men deny such spiritual supernatural power. They hold to a form of godliness, but they have denied 
its power. What is uh, something you've seen that demonstrates something like this? Have you ever seen someone holding to a form of the Christian religion but denying its power? Any examples of this? So you said atheists, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. So they use some of the things that are, uh, that are really exclusive, if you think about it, to believing in God and believing in the Christian Bible. And uh, they use those things as tools as part of their argument. Yeah, yeah, good. What else? Where are we seeing this? Cindy. That's a great point. When you, when you don't really want to do something hard that's in submission to Scripture, it's easy to find something that can rationalize or justify that. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a guy I talked to a number of years ago. He was pastoring a church at the time. Um, this was 15 years ago now, I guess. Uh, had attended the same seminary I went to, and he, I was talking, talking with him, kind of actually some initial uh, initial talk about you know maybe this would be a place that I would end up after seminary uh he said something to the effect of you know we don't take ourselves too seriously here that's kind of interesting I didn't think that much of it at the time um over the next few years it became very evident that uh he was preaching quote grace but it had a lot more to do with um not making a big deal about your own sin uh not really making a big deal about sin at all not really doing much about sin and uh, got uh, connected with some other people who were preaching this idea that, you know, we're just wretches and, you know, even after we're saved, we're still totally depraved and we just need God to forgive us over and over again. And that's what we need to focus on because to really pursue godliness is basically legalistic. Um, well, it shouldn't be surprising to you that some years later, uh, this man made the national news for essentially seducing another man's wife and um, all the while saying that he would preach the same gospel. In fact, would be saying that he preached a more biblical gospel because he's not adding all of these things to it. This is the kind of thing that's going on here, um, holding to a form of the Christian religion, but functionally or even maybe verbally to some degree denying its power. This, this is where this can go. This is why you can't just say, well, we have a right doctrine of justification and then excuse all kinds of sin underneath it. Free grace, so to speak, really just keeps you enslaved. And that's what was going on with these guys. And he says that you are going to be up against people who are like this, Timothy. These are not your friends. These are not people who are on the same page when it comes to Christian ministry. They may have many of the same doctrinal affirmations. But if by means of their doctrine of holiness or their lives, they contradict it and they deny the Christian religion, the power of it by virtue of being these things, then they are on the other side. And this is not what you hear a lot. You hear a lot of, uh, we're all on the same page. We're all doing the same thing. We're team Jesus, rah, rah, rah. You're for Jesus. We're for Jesus. Uh, there is something of a narrow, not just doctrinal, but practical outworking of the gospel that is required to not put yourself by default implicitly into the camp of opposing God in ministry and opposing faithful servants. So that's what this is talking about here. Yeah, let's see a hand back there a minute ago. Are you? Yeah, go for it.
Yeah, definitely. It's something that we always need to be aware of and not deny that. And yeah, that, that, that comes up over and over again, especially in uh, Titus and First Timothy, this idea that we need to adorn the gospel. We can't improve it, but we're supposed to dress it properly for, for uh, public display, if you will. We're not going to make people believe because we are such good people, but God's transforming work in us is a complimentary testimony that makes the gospel uh, commended to others. Yeah. Uh, think about the opposite of this. What would it look like if they did not deny its power but instead practiced it? Well, it would look like this if you just go through the contrast, just um, turn these things on their head. They would be deniers of self, disinterested in money, humble, speaking kindly of others, obedient to parents. They would be thankful. They would be holy. They would be loving. They would be forgiving. They would be truthful self-controlled they would love what is good they would be loyal they would be clear thinking and they would love god rather than loving pleasure now that sounds like a good list that's the kind of people that we want to be we want to be useful to the master as he said toward the end of chapter two so timothy is told to expect difficult times and to not be surprised by it and to realize that these difficult times will come because of what certain men will be in particular people who claim to be Christians or even claim to be Christian teachers who undermine the power of the gospel and the reality of the gospel by virtue of their conduct so he's got a prescription what do you do with such people verse 5 avoid such men as these avoid such men as these that's an interesting prescription. What, what else might you have expected to see there? Confront them, yeah. Yeah, and there's a place for that in you know, certain settings, right? He even says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, verse, uh, verse 25, chapter 2. There's a place for certain people being confronted. What else would you maybe expect? <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think avoiding that you're aligned with them and avoid, um, avoid sustain, like avoid partnering with them, certainly. I mean, certainly there's that. Um, again, you're right. The call is today for unity, for let's find our, as much common ground as we can. Let's work together as much as we can. There are certain things where you, I mean, look, there are degrees of working together, partnership uh, among Christians who... Uh, have not come to the same conclusions on certain biblical matters. There is a place for that. Um, Ephesians 4 recognizes that we are not yet at the unity of the faith. That's the goal. We should all strive to and uh, long to believe all of the same things. That doesn't mean that we will be the one who never moves a millimeter from where we're at. But what it does mean is that there is a standard of what is true. God has said that this is true. He has revealed it in Scripture, and we're all supposed to converge upon that. That's the goal. So we should be striving to come to perfect doctrinal alignment and godliness alignment. We're not necessarily going to get there in this life, but that's the goal. Doesn't mean we don't work together with someone who has a disagreement with us, but this is the kind of person that you're not supposed to work together with. You're not supposed to partner with this person. This person may say that they're a Christian, and, and you say, I, I can't. Like, I've got to avoid I've got to avoid this person. I need to stay away. They certainly can have a polluting influence as well. And you can uh, maybe make your own applications with wisdom to some of these matters. I mean, you know as well as I do, there are many, many different types of what claims to be Christianity in our world today. Uh, many different flavors. There are denominational things. There are network things. There, there are doctrinal components. Um, 
it's challenging to navigate that with wisdom and to say, you know, how close do I align with this person? How close do I get to this person? How much do I work together with this person? Or is there a time where I have to say, I just don't think we're doing the same thing, or I think you're actually undermining what we're doing by virtue of what you're teaching. And there are certain people that, by virtue of this godless character, they undermine the gospel. And he says, these people, you need to avoid them. What does he say about them that makes them need to be avoided? Besides their godlessness, he goes on to describe the way that they conduct themselves in interpersonal ministry. He says they use dishonest methods. They use dishonest methods. Uh, They don't knock on the door and say, we are here with the, uh, we are here with so-and-so church, and we're going to tell you this, and we're going to be honest with you and truthful and straightforward. They might say that they're doing that, but what do they do? They pry their way into the lives and the affections of people and unsuspecting people and vulnerable people in particular. Among them are those who enter into households and captivate who? Weak women weighed down with sins now some of you or at least maybe not here but maybe some of you uh you might even just see that phrase weak women and say paul the misogynist you know how could he even say that there might be such a thing as a weak woman i think we know that the reality is scripture says that there are certain people who are weak women there are weak men as well but there are such a thing as weak women uh and these are the kinds of people that they look for he describes who they are these are gullible followers they uh, find people first of all with a bad conscience they're weighed down with sins they have bad desires they're led on by various lusts or various impulses and they have bad thinking they're always learning but they're never never able to come to the knowledge of the truth all of those things by the way the grammar tells us here that they all describe the women not the teachers they're weighed down with sins they're led on by various impulses and they're always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth this makes them perfect prey for people who proclaim to be christians and profess to give them the answers to the problems that they need but then as it turns out they actually just take them captive and they take advantage of their vulnerability it does not say what they do with them other than draw them to themselves but the point is that they take people who really need the true gospel They need to repent, they need to know the forgiveness that Jesus offers, and they need to know the change that is possible. Instead, they take advantage of such people who are in these vulnerable positions, and then they use them for their own selfish ends. This is the kind of thing that false religion does, even if it professes godliness. You see these things all the time, don't you? You read about them in the news, and the world loves to to, uh, talk about this stuff. You know, here's another case of a church covering this thing up or of a church where one of the leaders in this area or that area got involved with somebody here and was doing these things the world loves it because it brings reproach upon the gospel but what's going on it's people who hold to a form of godliness but they deny its power and they take advantage of people rather than serving people and they use them for their own ends rather than seeking to give their lives away for them and We can call it what it is. It's disgusting. It's anti-gospel. It's anti-biblical. It is completely disobedient to God. But this is the kind of thing that people do. They, uh, They use dishonest methods. They captivate them. They seek gullible followers. And then they follow bad role models. This is the kind of person to be opposed. They follow bad role models, Janus and Jambres. Uh, the um, Egyptian sorcerers who opposed Moses were referred to by these names in Jewish writings. That's not actually in the scriptures themselves, but this came to be known as the names that they had. This may have been some extra biblical source that was contemporary uh, and just not in scripture, or it could have been something that later on developed as a tradition. Either way, these were the ones who opposed Moses. They were hostile to him when he was doing the miracles and he was showing this is the work of God. You need to follow him. And they were saying, no, no, we've got this version of divine activity and they opposed moses but their folly became obvious verse 9 says just as Janus and jambres's folly was also it says so these men they will not make further progress but their folly will be obvious to all and so they stand spiritually rejected they are men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith they claim to be christian teachers 
But God says, no, you're not even believers, and you're rejected with regard to Christianity. And then he says, they will not progress further. They will not progress further. Verse 9, they will not make further progress. They will only get so far. Their folly will become known. This is the kind of thing where these kinds of sins do become evident. We see these again all the time because there's only so long that you can hold on to something like this. There's only so long that you can keep this from being not evident and where people will not, uh, not find out and not be able to not just find out, but to label what you've done and to think about it properly. This is in opposition to what Timothy is told to do in 1 Timothy 4.15, where his progress was to be obvious to all. So their folly is going to be obvious. Timothy was supposed to be godly and pursuing godliness and pursuing the teaching of godliness in a way that would be obvious to all. So the warning, of course, from verse 5 is at the heart of this. Stay away from people like this. Don't be captivated by them. Don't be drawn astray by them. Make sure that people who would profess to teach the Christian religion have the credibility of not being ungodly, but instead that they actually are godly, that they display not the characteristics that are described in verses 2 through 4, but instead that they display the opposite of what is in that list. Those are the kind of people that are to be associated with. Those are gospel co-workers. Those are faithful leaders. Those are the kind of people you should aspire to be. And even though there are difficult times, we thank God when there are people who diligently pursue the kinds of things that are antithetical to the sins that are described in this list. And so I hope this gives you some discernment about what to look for when you're looking for not only who to follow, but also who to associate with and the kind of person that you should be as well when you're seeking to minister the gospel. Let's pray and uh, next week we'll come back to start in verse 10. Father, thank you for this warning. Thank you for the clear instruction that there is such a thing as someone who can claim to be Christian and even do so very strongly. And yet we know that the reality is only credible when they are not the kind of godlessness described here. They're not the kind of ungodly described here. Help us to be discerning. Help us to have the courage to uh, dissociate ourselves when necessary in accordance with this command. And may you use our faithful gospel testimony and our purity and the godly character that we would pursue to be used of you to bring other people to the knowledge of the truth and to godliness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.